Well, good morning. Can you hear me? Okay. Morning, church family. Um, it's good to be with you this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Terry Irwin. Uh, I'm a member, deacon, and former pastoral intern here at University Baptist Church. Um, and before I get begin, let me just say it's it's um, I'm so grateful for all of you. Um, I know Melissa and I just appreciate you and love you all so much. We're so grateful for this body and so thankful for the way that you you all have loved us. Um, and just grateful for the encouragement that I've received from so many of you this week as I prepared uh, so many text messages or just words of, of affirmation. It's been such an encouragement as I undertake this work because, as I say, it's an honor and a humbling one at that to get to open up and preach God's word with you all this morning. If that's With that said, if you'll open your Bibles with me to Psalm 18. That's the text that we're going to be considering this morning. And if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. We have some red pew Bibles there in the seat backs in front of you. You should find that Psalm 18 on page 454 of that red pew back Bible. And as you're turning there, I just want to take a moment uh, before we dive in and just, just help set a little bit of the, set up a little bit of the situation here and help prepare us a little bit because this is not your average psalm. For one, if you haven't noticed yet, if you've been reading it this week, it's quite a long psalm. In fact, it's the fourth longest psalm in the, book, in the book of Psalms, and it's also unique in terms of its theme and content. That's because it's uh, what you might call a royal psalm. Now, the royal psalms make up a relatively small number of psalms, only about maybe 10 to 15, depending on how you look at it. But the royal psalms, they can range in concern. So they can be prayers, they can be praises, they can be instructions, or even declarations of trust. But what, what unites them together, really, is their unique focus on the special relationship that exists between God and his king. That's because these psalms, they fit squarely within this stream of, of the Davidic covenant. They assume this important reality that God has made an everlasting covenant and promise to David and his, and his descendants to establish an eternal kingdom of righteousness and peace through one of David's descendants. And of course, this is a promise that the New Testament ultimately recognizes as having been consummated and fulfilled in Christ. And I say all that because it's crucial that when we come to a psalm like that, that we understand this, because it's this focus on that covenantal relationship between God and his king that means that we can't quite read a psalm like this in the same way that we might read another psalm. For instance, we read a psalm like Psalm 23. There's a sense in which we can immediately identify with the psalmist. We can say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But when it comes to a royal psalm, we have to be more careful. Because the royal psalms are not first and foremost about us, but about God and his covenant king. And friends, we are not the king. That's not to say that there's nothing here for us, as though we're a sort of third wheel on the contrary, what we're going to see, I hope, is that there's, there's much here for us to rejoice in. And there's much here that we can confidently say is true of us because it's true of our king. But before we can understand what's here for us, we must begin first by seeing what is here for David, what this says about David, and what this ultimately says about Christ. And only then will we know how we fit into the picture. Another thing that's quite unique about this psalm is that unlike a lot of other psalms, we actually have a lot of historical context for this psalm. 
not just because of that superscript that we'll get to in a minute there at the beginning, but, but also because this psalm appears in it, almost its entirety in the exact same form in 2 Samuel 22. Taken together, we can say with relative certainty both when this psalm was written and why. Its placement there in 2 Samuel 22 is particularly helpful because it helps us understand that this psalm was written relatively late in David's life. Throughout his reign, David had experienced battle after battle after battle. And he finally comes to a point there in Psalm, or 2 Samuel 22 where there's no more enemies, no more battles to be fought. And he reflects back on his life. And he picks up his pen and he composes this psalm as a way of praising God for his faithfulness to him in the past and expressing trust and hope that God will continue to be faithful to him and his descendants forever. In short, this psalm is David's way of declaring confidently God has and will continue to be faithful to the covenant promises that he has made to his Davidic king and to Israel. With that in mind, let's read the text together. And yes, we're going to read all 50 verses. Hang in there with me, though, because I promise you it'll be worth it in the end. Psalm 18. To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation and my stronghold, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me, and the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called out to the Lord. To my God, I cried for help, and from his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked, and the foundations of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him, and he bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones of coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire, and he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and I have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. 
I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord and who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and he set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet, for you equipped me with strength for the battle. And you made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind and cast them out like the mire in the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives. Blessed be the rock and and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Okay, I know that's a lot to take in, but I actually think that the point of this psalm is really quite simple. And it's this. Praise God for his faithfulness to our faithful king. It's something that I think is illustrated quite clearly, both at the beginning and the end of this psalm. When you step back and look at it, this psalm has a kind of chiastic or or mirrored structure. You look there at verses 1 through 3, and then again at the end in 46 through 50, and the psalm actually opens with these sort of two doxologies, or short hymns of praise. And for David, we can see in both of these hymns of praise this idea that he's praising God for his faithfulness to the king. In that opening section, David praises God and expresses his love towards God because he recognizes that God has been his strength, his rock, his deliverer, his stronghold. And then by the time we come to the end, once again, David is praising God because of his steadfast love towards him and his offspring forever. Each of these two sections really sort of serve to frame the psalm 
and help us see what the theme of the psalm is, that we should praise God along with David for his faithfulness to the king. It's that structure that really continues as we kind of come in from there. Because everything else between these two sections, it's something of like a praise sandwich, if you will. As we move inward, we see these two similar ingredients right on the inside and then a different ingredient right there in the middle. As David elaborates first on his, God's faithfulness to him in really three ways, two of which reflect how God's been faithful to him, and that we see there in 4 through 19 and then 28 through 50, and then right there in the middle in verses 20 through 27, David explains and he gives instruction on why God has been faithful to him. And so when you step back, in essence, David's train of thought throughout this psalm is something like this. Praise God, for he has delivered me. And he has faithfully delivered me because he delights in my faithfulness to him. Therefore, he has not only delivered me, but faithfully rewarded me with both strength and victory. And it's those three ideas that are going to serve as our three main points this morning. God has faithfully delivered our king because God delights in the faithfulness of our king. Therefore, God will faithfully reward our king. So again, we have those two sections on the outside that, that help set that theme up. But it's really those three sections there in the middle that we're spending the rest of our time focusing on. So starting with point one, if you look there in that first section, verses 4 through 19, David begins by reflecting on God's faithfulness to here in this first section, and he uses a series of images that, when taken together, really summarize God's faithful deliverance to him throughout his entire reign. The first image we find there in verses 4 through 6, and it demonstrates that God has delivered David personally from death time and time again. Of course, you remember way back last year in our series in 1 Samuel, we saw how Saul alone tried to have David killed num numerous times. Twelve times between chapters 18 and 19. Of course, there was David's own son, Absalom, who fomented a rebellion in secret and plotted to kill his own father. Not to mention the countless other times when David faced death in battle. But rather than recounting each one of those instances, David kind of brings them all together in one picture here. And the image that he uses is, is this image of death, like ropes tightening around him, or a flood of water constantly threatening to drown him. In both cases, the idea is that for David, death has been an ever-present threat throughout his life, constantly haunting him and threatening to drag him down into the grave. And yet, no matter how many times David's felt the breath of death on his neck, he escaped. How? Well, his words here show us that he recognized it wasn't ultimately his own strength and cunning that got him out of those situations. But it was God himself who personally delivered David from death. And he goes on to build on this idea with really another picture, a picture of a God who comes down from heaven to powerfully deliver his king in terrifying fury. If you look there in verses 7 through 15, David uses this vivid imagery of God coming down with this furious, ominous, terrifying, even destructive power. 
God hears David's cry for help from his heavenly temple, and he rises smoke billowing through his nostrils like devouring fire pouring from his mouth. He splits the skies, rocks the foundations of the earth. He rides swiftly with thunder and darkness and hailstones and fire. He lets out a volley of arrows and lightning. He pushes back the seas and the foundations of the earth are laid bare. I mean, friends, this is nothing short of cataclysmic imagery. But stop for a moment and think about this for a second. When did this happen? I mean, seriously. Right? This is heavy stuff. Like, did God actually do this? Like, where is this in, in First or Second Samuel? Because if you flip through it, I don't, I don't think this picture that we can identify it anywhere specifically. So what's going on here? Remember, David's not just reflecting on every instance, right? He's looking back and he's sort of summarizing God's faithfulness. And he's drawing on some very real and powerful imagery, though. And that powerful imagery, well, it comes from a very real situation. In Exodus 19, we read the same kind of cataclysmic sight was what the Israelites beheld as they stood at the base of Mount Sinai. Thunder and clouds and fire and smoke enveloped that mountain. And verse 18 tells us why. Because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Only this wasn't just an image in that case. It was the real deal. And yet as David is looking back on his life and he's thinking about all the times that God has been faithful to deliver him, he remembers that powerful and terrifying image of God at Sinai. And he connects one reality to the other. And even though we never read of a similar experience in David's life, what David's saying here is that that same God who was powerfully present at Sinai is the same God who is at work in his own deliverance. In other words, David doesn't need to see the smoke and the fire to know that it's God who powerfully rescued him from death. And finally, he caps this section with another image, a third image. And the idea here is that God's not only delivered him personally from death and powerfully from heaven, but perfectly from all of his enemies. If you look there at verses 16 and 19, notice the imagery. He drew me out of many waters. Rescued me from my strong enemies. Those who hated me, they confronted me, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. I mean, this is like a full-scale helicopter rescue in the middle of a firefight. David's enemies are closing in on him. He's got nowhere to run, and they're gaining ground quickly. But at the last second, when it seems like David is a goner, God swoops in like the most terrifying Apache helicopter you've ever seen. And he snatches David up. And he whisks him away, hundreds of miles away, not a soul in sight. Drops him in the middle of an open field. David's saying that's the kind of deliverance that God has shown his king. And in each of these three images, David is praising God for his faithful deliverance. Because time and time again... God has personally and powerfully and perfectly delivered David from his enemies. But friends, recognize if this is true for David, how much more so is it true for David's greater son, Christ? Because though unlike David for Christ, 
The grip of death was inescapable. The flood of waters were unavoidable. And though, unlike David, Christ would be delivered into the hands of his enemies, unlike David, his death was not something to run from, but the reason he came. Yet in spite of all of this, even considering the fact that unlike David, Christ did die, even his death wasn't enough to stop God's powerful, perfect deliverance. It was through his death and resurrection that God faithfully showed his deliverance not only to Christ, but to us. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then his coming, those who belong to Christ. You see, David's deliverance from death was temporary. It wouldn't be long after this, this same psalm that David would still die. Maybe not in battle and maybe not at the hands of his enemies, but death still came for him. Those old cords finally did have their way with David. That's because David, like everyone before him and everyone after, was born with a death sentence on his head. And he says as much in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. As Paul says, through Adam's sin, death has come to all, including God's King David. And yet in Christ, a greater deliverance has come. For through his death and resurrection, we who are dead can be made alive, not for a moment, but for forever. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're here with us this morning, I want to ask you this simple question. Do you see your peril? Do you feel the tug of those cords? Do you feel those waters rushing in? If not, let me make one thing clear to you. Death is coming. You and I are no different from David. We're both born into this world with a death sentence on our heads. The Bible says that death is the wages that you and I are owed for sin. And yet it also says that the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Friend, I want to plead with you if you do not know Christ, if you've not trusted him, if you've not repented of your sin and trusted in this deliverance, don't wait any longer. Death will not pause and wait for you. It is coming. But you too can be personally and powerfully and perfectly delivered from death. And brothers and sisters, as we think about this great salvation and we look to Christ, I wonder how often do we take the time like David to just reflect back on the ways that God has been faithful to us? Do we like David just Take a moment to sit and praise God for his deliverance. Are we thankful for it? Do we tell others about it the way that David does here? I'm not saying you have to write a song about it, but do we talk about it? I mean, do, we, do people hear it from us? Do they see that praise and thankfulness in our lives? Because we should be constantly and continually thankful 
that God has delivered our king. Because without that deliverance, we would have no hope. But praise God, he has delivered our king. And we get to share in that deliverance. And that brings us to our second point in the second section there in, in verses 20 through 27. Because God has not only faithfully delivered our king, but he's done so because he delights in the faithfulness of our king. David moves now from reflecting on God's faithful deliverance to really just considering why it is that God was willing to deliver him. And as surprising as it might actually seem, the answer is really quite simple. Look there in, verses, in verse 19, there at the end, and on to verse 20. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. I mean, David's point here is simple. It's clear. God delivered him because he delighted in him. And he delighted in him because he was righteous and clean. In other words, God's faithful deliverance of David was motivated by God's delight in David. And specifically, his delight in David's own faithfulness to God. Now, if you're like me, as simple and straightforward as a point that is, you might ask yourself some questions. I mean, is David being absurdly self-righteous here? Remember, this is towards the end of his life. This is well after David has sinned against God by committing adultery with Bathsheba and having, a man, and having her husband killed. So the very same guy who slept with someone else's wife and had her husband killed is now telling us that God delivered him from death because he delights in his righteousness? I mean, I know we're used to the self-aggrandizing speech of leaders, but this is something else. I mean, how can David say this? What's he doing? Well, I think there's a, a few things to keep in mind here. For one, I think it's important to recognize what this faithfulness and righteousness is and what it isn't. I don't think it entails a kind of sinless perfection. I don't think David has that in mind. I mean, the fact that he could pour his heart out to God in Psalm 51 in repentance shows us that David recognized that he wasn't without sin. He was under no delusions that he was by any means perfect. So whatever David means here, we know that that's not what he thinks. But what does it mean? I mean, again, in the simplest sense, David's saying that no matter what's happened to him throughout his life, no matter how things have gone, no matter how perilous things have been, and how tempted he might have been to turn away from God, he can look back on his time as king and he can say, God, I've trusted in you. I haven't turned away from you. I've remained faithful to you. That's not something that his predecessor Saul could say. No, Saul was so stubborn that he refused to choose repentance. Instead, he died rather than repent. And for that reason, God did turn his hand against Saul. God did deliver him to death. But David can look back on his life and say, God, you delivered me because you delight in me, because I've remained faithful to you. You see that there in verses 21 through 24. I've kept the ways of the Lord. I have not wickedly departed from my God. All his rules were before me, and his statues I did not put away from me. The reason David can say that God delights in him isn't because he's been the perfect king or even a sinless king, but because he's remained a faithful king. But again, friends, if David can say that, if he can look back on his life and say, 
God delights in me because I've been faithful. How much more so does he delight in the faithful and sinless obedience of his perfect son? For unlike David, Christ never sinned. Not even once. He was perfectly obedient and faithful to the will of his father. He is the true Davidic king, the beloved son with whom the father is well pleased. Matthew 3.17. He's God's perfectly obedient servant, the one whom he has chosen, his beloved with whom his soul is well pleased, Matthew 12, 18. He's the one on whom the Father has set his seal, John 6, 27. The one whose food it is to do the will of his Father, John 4, 34. The one who does all that his Father has commanded so that the world may know that he loves the Father, John 14, 30. He's the one who became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2, 8. In fact, God is so much more pleased with Christ than he was with David that he not only delivered Christ from death, but he has made his obedience and his death to be the source of our very own righteous standing and delight before God. For it's in his righteousness and his pleasing obedience to the Father and his satisfactory death on our behalf that we have any hope that God is pleased with us. Several years back, I had the opportunity um, to spend some time evangelizing and discipling a man who the Lord brought my way. I mean, it was a rather incredible situation, actually. I was standing in the middle uh, of the front hallway of my church at the time after the service, and I didn't know him. He walked up to me, and he said, hey, man, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, I've been coming here a couple times, and they keep talking about the gospel, like, what is that? What do we need to do to be saved? They keep saying we need to be saved. What is that? How can I be saved? What is the gospel? I mean, that's what I call an evangelism alley-oop. I was like, okay, uh, yeah, sure. So, of course, I shared the gospel with him right then and there, but he didn't seem to quite get it. And so I kept reaching out to him, and, you know, we, we started hanging out regularly, and we would talk continually about what he needed to do, that he needed to repent and put his trust in Christ, but he just, he didn't seem to get it. And one night, we were having this conversation, and I was pressing it home again, and <clears throat> he was sitting there in silence, and he looked up at me, and he said, I just want God to be able to look at me and say, you're my son. I love you, and I'm pleased with you. And I looked back at him, and I said, that's the thing, though. He isn't. He isn't pleased with you. And he isn't pleased with me. But he is pleased with Christ. He said that about Christ. And because he said that about Christ, we have a hope that he can say that about us if we'll be found in him. That's what I want us to see here, friends. Again, if you're a non-Christian and you're in the room, recognize this can be true of you. You can say that God is pleased with you, but not because of what you have done, but what Christ has done. Because apart from him, we have no hope of deliverance. Christ has lived a life that you and I have not. He's died the death that you and I deserve. He satisfied God's wrath on our behalf. Again, I would once again implore you, look to him. Look at these verses and see your need to trust not in yourself or your own righteousness, but in Christ. And to my brothers and sisters, 
recognize the wonderful assurance that these verses hold out to us. Because no matter how much we fail and struggle in our sanctification, we can take heart in knowing that God's approval of us and his faithfulness to us isn't ultimately rooted in us, but in his son. But I wonder how often you rest in that hope. When you fail and you sin, do you get stuck in this mindset where you think you have to earn your way back into God's heart? Recognize that what this text is pointing you towards. Consider John's words in 1 John 2, 1 through 2. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Brothers and sisters, David's words here are meant to point us to that kind of assurance that we can know and trust that God delights in us because he delights in the faithfulness and the righteousness of our king. That's not to say that we shouldn't aim to actually be faithful to God. David's words there in 25 through 27 are true. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. I mean, the New Testament speaks to this reality all over the place. Consider Paul, Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. The saying is trustworthy, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Like David, it's important we recognize the important reality of our faithfulness to God. We can't just assume Jesus has been our delight and he satisfied God on our behalf so we can go on doing whatever we want. No, Christ hasn't delivered us and satisfied God on our behalf so that we might go on sinning. Whether, as Colossians 1.22 says, we've been reconciled in his death in order to be presented to God as holy and blameless and above reproach for him. Which means, like Paul, we should make it our prayer and our aim to walk in a way that is fully pleasing to him. So, brothers and sisters, I ask, do you make it your aim to please him, knowing that ultimately the sure foundation of that is in Christ? And that brings us to our final point. God has faithfully delivered our king because he delights in the faithfulness of our king. Therefore, God will faithfully reward our king. As you move into the last section there in verses 28 through 50, David is building off of everything that he said so far. And again, we see another series of images. And these series of images, uh, they demonstrate his praise to God, not only for delivering him because he delights in him, but also for rewarding him. And that reward, it really takes two forms here. First, you see there in verses 28 through 36, David uses these images that all center on the idea that God has rewarded him with strength for battle. David is given light to make his way in the darkness, strength to run against an army and scale a wall, strength like a shield. God has equipped him with strength. He's made his feet swift and agile like a deer. He's trained his hands for war. He's given him strength to bend a bronze bow. All of, all of these things, friends, you get the idea. They're pictures of strength for battle. 
David is praising God for not only delivering him, but empowering him to do battle. But why is that praiseworthy? I mean, is David just a, a bloodthirsty warrior who's excited for battle and loves the thrill of the fight? No. David's praising God for strength because that strength has an end, and that end is victory. And that's what we see there in that second image there, series of images there in 37 through 45. David keeps going, and, and this strength that really crescendos into this idea that that strength has been given to give David victory. And there's really two types of victory here. First, a kind of victory that ends in the total destruction or judgment of his enemies there in verses 37 through 42. The idea there is that those same ones who were closing in on David, well, the tables have turned now, and David is chasing after them, and they're running in fear. But David's not going to stop, and there is no rescue coming for them. They will be totally and completely defeated. It's brutal imagery, but it's meant to show us that God's victory through David over his enemies is total and complete. But it's not the only image of victory. In verses 43 through 45, the psalm ends with a different kind of victory. One that ends not with destruction, but with the allegiance of his enemies. And ultimately, the allegiance of the nations. David says in 43, You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of nations. People whom, I'm, whom I had not known served me. And as soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The picture here is also unmistakably clear. David has been rewarded by God with the allegiance of his enemies, not just the destruction of them. And it's crucial that we remember that covenant background of the royal psalms because we need to see this isn't some generic praise for winning a battle. This strength and this victory that David is recounting here, it is the clear demonstration that God has been faithful to the promises that he made to David in 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 11. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be the prince over my people, Israel, and I've been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more. As formerly, from the time I appointed judges over my people, Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. So recognize what we said at the beginning. David's finally on a point in his life where there are no more battles to be fought, where all the foes have been defeated or bowed before him. And in essence, David's coming to the end of this psalm and the end of his life, and he's saying, God's been faithful to those promises. He has delivered his king. He's delighted in his king. And he has rewarded his king with strength and victory. In short, the praises here are not primarily about David's strength and David's victory, but God's. But more than that, David, as we come to the end of the psalm, is starting to see something that goes well beyond his own life. And he's looking no longer back, but forward. And he closes with this confidence that God's faithfulness to him in the past 
is the sure hope of his eternal promise to be faithful to his offspring forever. Look there at verses 49 through 50. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. David sees what we've already started to see, namely that it is Christ and not David who is the ultimate fulfillment and consummation of these promises and these praises. While David and the Israelites had reached a state of peace, that peace would barely last a generation. War would once again rear its ugly head. And sadly, the story we see as we go throughout the rest of the Old Testament is one of constant disappointment. Time and time again, we're left waiting and wondering, when will David's greater son come? When will the one who establishes God's kingdom forever come? Where is the king who will finally rescue God's people for good? Where is the one who will finally obtain the allegiance of the nations? But praise God, friends, that king has come. Those promises have been fulfilled. As Paul said in our scripture reading this morning, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Friends, if God has rewarded David with strength and victory, how much more so has he rewarded our king? And what is the strength and victory that has been given to Christ, if not the reconciliation of all things? As Paul says in Colossians 1.19, For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And like David, the victory that Christ has, it comes in two forms, either judgment or worship. For those who stand opposed to Christ, the strength and the victory that God has given him will be a victory of final judgment. And sadly, those who remain in their sins and remain obstinate against him will be judged eternally. But for those of us who've bowed down before this king and put our trust in him, that victory is one of grace. Because Christ has triumphed in us, not by judging us, but by securing the reward of our eternal allegiance to him. What an amazing thought that God, through Christ, would triumph over his enemies, not by destruction, but by grace. That's the way Paul understood himself, as an enemy of God, who had been defeated by the glorious grace of God. We see this beautifully depicted in 2 Corinthians 2.14, when Paul says, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. See, Paul's drawing on this imagery that's normally used to describe a victory parade that the Roman emperor would carry out, where his captured foes in tow, the emperor would ride through the streets of Rome with thick clouds of incense covering the air as a testimony to his victory. And yet Paul co-opts that imagery, and he instead applies it to Christ, because it is Christ and not Caesar who should be praised for his victory and his glory but he also co-opts that imagery and applies it to himself. He sees himself as a captured foe of Jesus, and his whole ministry is nothing short of a victory parade, testifying to the grace of God. 
Brothers and sisters, should we not have the very same attitude about ourselves, the very same attitude about our ministries and about our lives? We who were once his enemies have been redeemed by his grace so that we might become a people for his own possession, a people who will worship and adore and praise him for all eternity. He has won the allegiance of the nations. He has won our allegiance. And it is our worship now and forevermore that is his eternal reward. Consider the example of Johann Dober and David Nitschmann, two missionaries who were so concerned to preach the good news to the African slaves on the island of St. Thomas and St. Croix. They were willing to be sold into slavery themselves if that was the only way that they could reach those slaves. And as their ship pulled away from the docks, they reportedly called out to their loved ones on the shore, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. That's the kind of heart and the kind of glory that King Jesus is owed. Friends, I pray that that's the kind of heart that we would have as a church. That we would see ourselves as those who've been captured by his grace. And that we would willingly and gladly pour ourselves out for his name. Friends, I hope you can see now why we should praise God for his faithfulness to our faithful king. Because in him we have the sure hope that his deliverance is our deliverance. That his delight is our delight. That his reward is our reward. Friends, one day our king will return. And on that day, he will be the one who rides in the clouds. And he will bring victory, either through judgment or through deliverance. Which side will you be on on that day? I hope and I pray that you will be on the side of our faithful and glorious king. Will you pray with me? God, we praise you for your faithfulness to our faithful king. We confess that he is our only hope of salvation. He is our only hope of pleasing you. And he is our only hope of eternal reward. Apart from him, we are nothing and we have nothing. But we praise you because in him you've chosen what is low and despised in the world. So that no human being might boast in your presence. But Father, we do boast, not in ourselves, but in Christ. For as your word says, all things are ours because we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to you. Amen. Friends, would you stand with me?